pigs that are born at a low birth weight, there's a certain level of kind of, I don't know exactly what it is. It could just be, uh, some people have referred to it as fetal imprinting, but basically even if you refeed them or they regain weight at a faster rate to then be on par with their normal birth weight litter mates or their normal weight litter mates, um, there's still abnormalities that persist, uh, even though their body weight is back to normal. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter, Ontario, and Demeter, Quebec. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Working with nature and not against it, Piglets Fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. That's www.protecta.com. Hey, welcome everybody to today's SwineIt Canada podcast. I am Dan Columbus, your host for today's episode. And with me, I have Dr. Dylan Olver, who is an assistant professor in vet biomedical sciences at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine here in Saskatoon. So welcome to the show, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different topic today, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, So before we get going on that, I just because some of our audience may not be familiar with you and the work that you do, I just ask you to maybe introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your, your journey so far. So, um, well, in short, I did my doctoral work at the University of Western Ontario. And um, at that point, most of my work was focused in humans and in, in rodents. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a physiologist by training and I, I study biomedical sciences. So I'm a, I, at the core of it, I study the relationship between heart and brain health uh, with applications to humans and companion animals predominantly, but also uh, to livestock in some instances. Um, from Western, I, I com- then went to the University of Missouri where I completed a fellowship there, and it's there where I got introduced to working with uh, swine. And so they have a biomedical research facility there at their vet school. Uh, and it's focused uh, heavily on swine research. They're one of few institutions across the world that has uh, a, a large focus on using swine as a model of human health. Uh, there are several others, but Missouri's a notable one with a long track record of, um, of using swine for that purpose. And so it was there that I got trained um, 
trained in working with pigs. And then from there, I ended up at the University of Saskatchewan in their vet school, where I've built uh, a research program that has a uh, preclinical and a clinical side. So the clinical side is operated uh, out of the uh, hospital, the university hospital, and the preclinical side, which is where we use swine, is located here in the vet school. And so that's kind of where I started and then how I ended up here and, and why I studied pigs. So I, I'm not a producer. Uh, I have very little knowledge of pigs from the perspective of livestock, but uh, I use them as models to study human disease. Yeah, it's because I, I'm saying it's a, it's a little bit of a different topic and kind of area that we're, we're delving into a little bit because I think a lot of people aren't aware of the uh, how, how well uh, animals and specifically pigs are used as models for, for human health and everything. But even like we were talking about before we, we started recording, you know, that even what we find in, 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 in the work that we're doing with pigs as models for, for say humans can apply to multiple species and even pigs themselves, uh, when it comes to it. So, uh, also we'll comment too, just cause I've been trying to get people, to see the benefit of using a pig over rodent models. And I guess we'll get into that when it comes to the cardiovascular <laughs> uh, work that you've been doing. So I guess that's maybe a, a good segue into today's topic is the, the work that you've been doing in, in cardiovascular health uh, and, and pigs and, and kind of what you've been finding. So when I started at the University of Missouri, the group I worked with, which was led by a professor by the name of Harold Laughlin, and um, so I was working with, with Harold and then a, another scientist there, Dr. Craig Emter. Um, uh, so I was working with them and they were, they were studying cardiology and heart failure. And the reason they were using pigs was because the pig heart is um, as close as you can get really to the human heart in a, in a research model. Um, and so they studied heart failure in pigs to try to gain insight onto heart failure in humans. And they were doing everything from examining different drug treatments and the effect on heart failure to putting pigs on treadmills and looking at how cardiac rehabilitation affects remodeling of the heart. Um, and now just on that note, recently it's been in the news. It happened last year and now it's happened again this year that they've actually successfully um, uh, placed, a, transplanted a pig heart into a human who had heart failure. So that's just to give you an idea of how similar the hearts are. Uh, for over, you know, 50 years, we've been using pieces of the pig heart or valves from pig hearts to replace faulty valves in human hearts. And now we're at the, the point where we can actually take a pig heart and successfully transplant it into a human. Now, the a couple of years ago when that first happened, the um, the recipient only survived a couple of weeks, but uh, they think that they've done significant gene editing since then, and hopefully that the heart will be accepted in its new donor now. But all of that to say, so this is what they were studying was pig heart failure uh, as a model of human heart failure. Now, when I got there, I was really interested in the brain. And so what I did is I started teaching these pigs how to complete different cognitive tasks, and uh, they turned out to be remarkably intelligent by uh, conventional animal standards. So I had previously done work with rodents and they just kind of circulate and eat their own feces. And what was when interpreting cognitive behavior of a rat, uh, 
you always have to take that with a grain of salt. And so when I was at the University of Missouri, you know, they're studying this hard. And then at the end of a terminal experiment, uh, they might just dispose of the carcass. And I thought, there's a, a perfectly good brain there we could be studying. And, and unlike rat brains, uh, pig brains, so rat brains are really smooth. And human brains are, are not smooth. They're what they call gyrencephalic. So they're, they have these deep grooves or fissures in them. And it's a way to pack in more neurons into the same space. And uh, pigs have similar styled brains to humans, which make them a great model not only to study heart failure, but how heart failure affects the brain. And so in this sense, I, when I got there, I was really excited to start studying the brain of these pigs with heart failure. Uh, because, of course, in humans, it's not entirely ethical to go in and, and take out a brain from a living human. And so it's much easier to do on a, a pig that's being euthanized. And so when I started training them and completing these cognitive tasks to see how smart they were, um, I built this kind of it's called a modified spatial holeboard task. And when I had my son complete the task, he might have been two or three at the time. Uh, so I was testing it out on him to see how well he could navigate and solve this little um, this little cognitive test I developed. And the pigs that we had exercising actually could solve it using a better search strategy than what my son was using at the time. And so, you know, I, I don't know what that says about my son's genetics, but uh, or his environment. <laughs> but what it did tell me is that these pigs are 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 pretty smart and they were using fairly complex search strategies to solve these cognitive tasks. So they were using spatial and sequential search st strategies, meaning that they would go through looking for a specific bait in a specific order so as not to repeat the same mistake twice, uh, which became really interesting. And the paper I published from that, the pigs that exercised actually ended up being so smart uh, that they all completed the cognitive test perfectly, uh, which means there's no error bars on that on that graph. So there's these heart failure pigs, and they had a more difficult time completing the task, uh, but some of them were okay, but others weren't. And so there's some variability there, but these exercised pigs, uh, they they all completed it perfectly, which again, uh, I don't know if that speaks to how smart they are or how smart the person who designed the test was because uh, I think they maxed out my sensitivity to design a test. So anyways, um, while I was there though, what was interesting is that a producer uh, or someone who studies production became interested in some of the tests I developed. And what they ended up doing was uh, wanting to put in some of my cognitive contraptions into the barns just to provide the pigs with some enrichment uh, because they noted, they were like, oh, they didn't know pigs were so smart. And when I was doing presentations in Missouri and people were saying, oh, yeah, these pigs are quite intelligent, then they wanted to modify some of the environments that the pigs were in just to give them a little more engagement. And so then taking the job here, uh, I continued on uh, doing some of that work. So we've been doing, you know, cardiac and brain MRIs in pigs and exercise training pigs and doing cognitive testing. Um, and then after we do those types of tests, we, we do surgical preparations and look at uh, cardiovascular control and blood flow control in the brain. So we look at how diet or exercise uh, affects cognition and then blood flow to the brain uh, to see if we can't help offset 
diseases that affect the brain or develop treatments to to combat those. Yeah, I, we, we, we won't touch on the ethics of having uh, experiments on your kid. <laughs> I have been a little bit interested to know what exercise we need to be doing in order to have a, a perfect score on this cognitive test. Yeah, those pigs, you know, a pig can actually, it can run quite well on a treadmill. Not a lot of people, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure producers know how well a pig can move when it's motivated. Uh, but some of those pigs, we were using Yucatan miniature swine for that experiment. And uh, I've since, I've put some just commercial uh, land race pigs on treadmills before, but I've also used Ossabaw swine, which are, we can get into Ossabaw in a, in a bit here. But uh, there are times some of these pigs have got up over 10 miles per hour on a, you know, an incline of 10% on a treadmill, which you know, that's, that's rivaling the most, you know, very, very fit, well-trained humans. So uh, those pigs can move quite well on the treadmill. And once they become adept at it, they, they seem to enjoy it. They'll do it more voluntarily, you know, training them to do it takes a little bit of coaxing, but um, they're smart and they like it. And then of course, now you've got these little miniature exercise machine pigs that appear to be extremely intelligent. So, I mean, the risk is if they become too fit and too smart, uh, maybe they'll take over. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think we're all very well aware that pigs are able to run. It's stopping. That seems to be the problem (laughs) for them once they get going. (laughs) There's been a lot of, you know, I always read in the news the wild boar issues uh, that our province is facing or Saskatchewan is facing and how that's spreading across uh, the border and in also into Alberta or, or other parts of the province or Canada. And, um, you know, there's these farmers and people are becoming concerned with how do you even trap them? Because uh, I've seen writing that would suggest they you're not to use specific traps because they'll learn how to avoid those traps. And, um, and they're extremely difficult to find and they're fast and strong and all of these things that I thought, Oh yeah, I could see this coming. Pigs are the unknown super species. So, so I guess you mentioned that you've been looking at a, a, a number of different factors and how this all relates to the, the cerebrovasculature and cardiac function. So maybe just get into a little bit of that and, and what are some of the factors you've looked into and in some of your findings? Initially, some of the work I was doing here, we were looking at how, diabetes affects cognition and blood flow to the brain and we're looking at that in juvenile pigs and then sexually mature pigs as a model of kind of adolescent children and then adults and uh and then we took a separate group of pigs who also had diabetes and we exercise trained them now the way that we induced diabetes was that uh, apart from giving them like a, a really high fat feed it doesn't pellet very well but they'll still eat it if there's enough fat and sugar uh we also then provide them with sugar water so as opposed to just giving them regular water we're mixing bags of you know 40 kilo bags of sugar dumping them into rain barrels and we built a gravity fed water system and they're just drinking 30 percent sugar water all the time so then over the course of a couple months, these pigs, not unlike a human, start developing the, the clinical signs of diabetes. And then at some point, they'll, they'll pass a threshold where they would be diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, and then we start to look at how their, 
their blood vessels, how they, how they think, and then how their blood vessels are functioning and specifically the blood vessels in their brain. And so what we had determined is that um, we had, again, the young pigs or the adolescent pigs and then the sexually mature pigs. And when it came to the cognitive functioning, it seemed that the diabetes uh, was particularly, um, I guess, harsh on the juvenile pigs. So their cognition really went down. So that would suggest that the, the high blood sugar and the other, uh, the other signs of diabetes are impairing the neurodevelopment. Uh, so the pigs just, they, they didn't develop properly. And so they never really got nearly as intelligent as all the other pigs. And the exercise, uh, it combated that entirely. In fact, our, our juvenile pigs that did the exercise training, and that was three days a week of interval training on a treadmill, uh, they ended up performing quite well on those cognitive tests. When we moved to the, the adult pigs or the sexually mature pigs, it was a similar effect, but the magnitude of change was just much smaller. So uh, the pigs that were sedentary and had diabetes while there were some cognitive deficits, they weren't very robust. And the exercise, though beneficial, wasn't nearly as beneficial as it was in those juveniles. So, um, you know, that allows me to be lazy. But again, it means I got to make sure my kid's exercising all the time. So, <laughs> but, uh, but really, it was quite interesting to see that. And then when we did the MRIs on the pigs and we looked at um, what's called... Um, gray matter and it's a an indirect estimate of how many cells neuronal cells there are in the brain and what we saw is that very the exact same trend that we saw in the cognition was mirrored in these in these brain mri scans and what we saw was that the young group that exercised had a lot of gray matter and the young group that was sedentary and had diabetes they didn't have very much and so that effective exercise was was really pronounced in the juvenile pigs. And then in the, in the mature pigs, the effective exercise was really quite small, what you would call statistically insignificant, uh, meaning that there's, there's perhaps no, no significance or what you see as a change might not actually be a change or beyond what random chance uh, would suggest. And so really these effects of exercise were, were most pronounced in the juvenile pigs. Now, when we actually looked at the cardiovascular health of these animals, the good news for all of us is that uh, exercise was effective across the board and the magnitude of effect was similar across the board. So it improved blood flow control in the brain and it improved how your brain blood vessels dilate um, to all different types of stimuli. And this is important because reduced blood flow to the brain is uh, believed to be among the number one cause of cognitive dysfunction, so dementia, um, in early onset dementia, as well as adult dementia. So it's a, a, a contributing cause is that as you age, you send reduced blood flow to your brain, and slowly then the brain might be starving a little bit. And over time, this accumulates, this effect of starvation might accumulate and cause cognitive impairment or neurological dysfunction. And so these pigs that exercised, they all had much better blood flow to the brain. And when you apply a stimulus to try and relax blood vessels to increase flow to the brain, the pigs that exercised, uh, their blood vessels relaxed a lot and they could increase blood flow to the brain. And then when we took them, after we euthanized the pigs, 
we harvest the brain and then we isolate individual blood vessels. And so we take out little blood vessels that are about the, the thickness of a human hair and we look at how they function and they all were better in the exercised animals. And it, it boiled down to at a functional level that they had less inflammation. And so there was a, a protective effect of exercise that was, appeared to be mediated through a reduced inflammation and an increased antioxidant defense. And that allowed those blood vessels to function properly. And in the sedentary animals, they didn't. And so what that would suggest is that over time, these animals, although in the period of our study, which was only three to four months long, uh, we didn't see in those adult animals these great cognitive uh, deficits. But over time, the literature suggests in humans, you'll see this, uh, and it could be because their blood vessels are becoming inflamed and have no defense against um, what's called reactive oxygen species. But for the sake of this conversation, we'll just call it inflammation. So that was, that was some of that work. We have data on their heart function as well, which also improved in the exercised animals. But um, my, the part I enjoyed most was the part in the brain. Now, steering from that, um, this is maybe more relevant to producers, I guess. I feel like I'm on the hook to producers just because I don't know how many scientists are listening who study health. So um, we started looking at the relationship between body size and uh, blood flow to the brain and pumping capacity of the heart. Because we were dealing with juvenile pigs and mature pigs, we had a weight range from about, let's say, 20 kilos in our juvenile pigs to 120 kilos in our kind of sexually mature pigs. Now, we were using Ossabaugh swine there, so their top end weight is about 120 kilos. Um, and so anyways, we're looking at, apart from just age, how does body size affect some of the cardiovascular parameters that we were studying? And when I started to look into that, um, a group who I actually had worked with previously, so I, I once did a, a visiting scholar fellowship in the Netherlands and worked with a group led by um, Dirk Dunker and Daphne Merkus, and they had published some papers looking at the relationship between body size and cardiovascular performance in pigs. And I guess uh, the angle that they were taking to approach this question was that the domestication process over the last hundred years has favored, you know, meat quality and, and different economic outcomes. And so this has resulted in, you know, a disproportional increase in growth rate, fattening and muscularity of pigs in the last couple hundred years or hundred years. And so when you read some of the early literature, it suggests that, you know, in the, in the early 1900s, it might take uh, two years for a pig to get to market weight, and market weight was well under 100 kilos. And now these pigs can reach 100 kilos in six months. And so uh, market weight is higher, and they're reaching market weight more quickly, uh, which is obviously that favors, you know, it's because of the selective breeding, favoring economic outcomes, meat quality, fattening, and muscularity. At the same time, it's quite possible that other features weren't selected for. And what they were looking at is kind of the lack of cardiovascular proportionality. So while these pigs are growing much bigger faster, and that's great from a, a grocery store perspective, uh, their cardiovascular system isn't developing in tangent or simultaneously at the same rate. 
And so in that sense, we've, we've also selectively bred out cardiovascular features or function. And so they theorize that this might relate to some of the circulatory issues that modern domesticated pigs face and also some of the transport-related health issues they face, including mortality. And from there, then, we read a study showing that on pigs that show up to abattoirs, when they were comparing hearts that died in tra- hearts from pigs that died in transit compared to uh, pigs that made it through and then um, were euthanized, and they looked at their hearts, the pigs that died in transit more, o- more often had lesions on their hearts, suggesting some cardiac abnormality. And so... Building on that then, um, and to understand just the effect of size, you know, you can't take age out of it entirely, but we started looking at how uh, just in regular domesticated swine, differences in cardiovascular and brain blood flow function between uh, 20-kilogram pigs and 120-kilogram pigs. And one of the things that we theorized was that it's possible that because these larger pigs are dying in transit, we were wondering if maybe they'd lost some, um, some adrenergic stimulation features. So basically, when there's a fight-or-flight stimulus, uh, were they not responding sufficiently? And so when, they, when their heart gets stressed, maybe it can't pump enough blood to perfuse the whole body. Because the whole body is so big in, this, in the modern pig Uh, In a small pig, when it's stressed, your heart starts beating faster and beating harder and is pumping more blood. And maybe that's enough blood to meet the metabolic needs of a small pig. But in a larger pig, there might just not be enough blood that that heart can pump. So no matter how hard it goes, it can't go hard enough. What's interesting is that like every other hypothesis I've had, it actually turned out to maybe be the reverse. And so when we started stressing the pig's hearts under anesthesia, the the 120 kilogram pigs their hearts respond a lot better to pharmacological stressors that emulate the fight or flight response and that's counter to what a i would have predicted but b what the literature suggests so normally as you get older your heart's response to fight or flight stressors decreases and so it's these they're called beta adrenergic receptors and when you get stressed out Activation of these receptors causes your heart rate to go up and it causes your heart to pump harder. Um, And as you get older, you lose these receptors. And so the same stress doesn't evoke the same increase in heart function. Now, in these pigs, the opposite happened where the older, bigger pigs, when we induced a stress, they had a greater stress response than the younger pigs, which then that's sending me on a whole different track with this question and wondering, are they hypersensitive to stress? And that's why they're experiencing mortality in transit is that a stress that a a young pig's heart just takes in stride for some reason, it could be, you know, over the top for these large pigs hearts. I don't know why they're so sensitive to stress, but they are. So their heart rate jumps higher than a young pigs and their increases in, in pumping capacity. Uh, go higher than a, a smaller pigs, and so something's going on there where they're they're defying kind of conventional, at least human physiology, and we're we're still trying to tackle that. But they did show heightened sensitivity to stress, which is just 
the opposite of what you might expect. Interesting. I always think it's 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 more interesting when you get something that you're you don't expect and to get to just prove your stuff. Although the students that are writing this up might not agree when they have to <laughs> go and try to explain that. Um, I guess this is a good segue, and I think maybe this will also make the producers listening a little bit happier and a shameless plug for our collaborative research because we we did work with low birth weight, which is also an increasing issue when we're selecting for increased litter size and then what that means when you put that in for nutrition. So I'm just wondering if you want to comment on that study and what you found with that. So in that study, we were looking at how uh, so obviously the original study was, uh, was yours and you had, you had this complex design of investigating how birth weight and refeeding affect growth performance in, in swine. And from that, I, I basically was able to build a sub-study just looking at how birth weight alone affects cardiac function as well as cerebrovascular function. And um, what we saw there was that uh, there are certain parameters. So pigs that are born at a low birth weight, there's a certain level of kind of, I don't know exactly what it is. It could just be, uh, some people have referred to it as fetal imprinting, but basically even if you refeed them or they regain weight at a faster rate to then be on par with their normal birth weight litter mates or their normal weight litter mates, um, there's still abnormalities that persist uh, even though their body weight is back to normal. And so we saw altered pump mechanics in the heart of pigs that were born with low birth weight. And this is, you know, 26 and 56 days after birth. And in some cases by 56 days, their, their weights were close to the same and they had, they had undergone this kind of catch up growth. Um, and we saw dysfunction in the blood vessels in their brain. And specifically what we saw was an impaired capacity of blood vessels to dilate, uh, owing to reduced nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is this molecule that causes blood vessels to relax and impairments in nitric oxide signaling, uh, they underlie a lot of things. So erectile dysfunction, pulmonary hypertension, um, heart attacks. There's all sorts of things that if you have impaired function of this molecule from a human health perspective, it's detrimental to blood flow and then organ function. And in these low birth weight pigs, even at 56 days of age, uh, and many of them by that point had undergone catch-up growth, uh, they still had impaired nitric oxide function in the blood vessels in their brain. And what's interesting is that if you look in the human literature, Kids that are born with low birth weight, even if they lead otherwise healthy lives, they're at a greater risk for dementia later in life. And one of the potential mechanisms is that the blood vessels in their brains might not be dilating as well, owing to this impairment in nitric oxide. From a producer perspective, though, you have to wonder if these cardiovascular impairments persist even after the pigs have undergone some catch-up growth. Is it perhaps these pigs that when they get to market weight and are shipped off, the ones that are showing up uh, and they're, they die in transit and they have these cardiac lesions, is this something that perhaps it was these were low birth weight pigs and they have these underlying cardiovascular issues uh, that they just didn't develop properly in utero and then nobody is really aware of that and then when they get shipped off, they're dying. And so... 
that's not confirmed. It's just something that I'm, I speculate because we do see alterations in the way the heart works and the blood vessels and the brain work. And of course, if blood flow to your heart or your brain cease for even a little, like a, a brief second, uh, that can have catastrophic effects on life. So, yeah, it's definitely something I think we should look into. Just, you know, when it comes to low birth weight pigs, and I think producers are very well aware of these and nutritionists as well, the focus is on, well, how do, how do we get them to grow like their normal birth weight? How do we get them to market at the same time, right? And less so about, well, what are the other potential negative impacts that that low birth weight is having on them? And it would be horrible to, to go through all that time, bring them up to market weight, and then they die on the truck because of a cardiovascular uh, problem that started because they're small, right? Something else from that 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 study made me think about was that, um, so one of the, the features of my research program that I study, and this has been an interest of mine since I started in grad school, it's the first paper I published, and uh, I'm still doing studies on this today, which is looking at how insulin uh, dilates blood vessels. And so in the in the 90s, it's been studied for uh, over, well, about 80 years now. Um, but in the 90s, uh, researcher Elaine Barron did this study and he showed that, so when you ingest sugar, you secrete insulin. Insulin causes that sugar to get taken up into the muscle. But it also causes the blood vessels in your muscles to dilate through that nitric oxide molecule. And that dilation then facilitates more blood flow to that muscle, which delivers more nutrients to the muscle and more insulin and further increases the glucose uptake into the muscle. And it's estimated that that dilatory effect of insulin accounts for about 30% of glucose uptake into the muscle. So you're delivering more sugar to the muscle. Um, Now, if you have impairments in nitric oxide, insulin-induced dilation, uh, it doesn't work. And so insulin then doesn't dilate, and instead it causes constriction. And it got me thinking with those low birth weight animals when we were, you know, you were talking about the refeeding and the catch-up growth. And you know uh, from the human literature, a lot of times that catch-up growth is associated with insulin resistance. And so vascular insulin resistance is characterized by impairments in that nitric oxide signaling. And if those low birth weight pigs, if they have impaired nitric oxide signaling, it's quite possible they have vascular insulin resistance, which means that when they're trying to take sugar up into their muscle, impairments could be as large as 30%. So they're less efficient at storing nutrients in their muscle, which would delay their catch-up growth possibly related to this nitric oxide molecule. And so, you know, becoming insulin sensitive from a vascular perspective might actually increase muscularity in these animals as they'd be able to take up more nutrition into their muscle. I mean, that was part of what we were trying to do with that study and find out why these pigs don't respond the same way. I don't know if there's anything we can measure in what we took from that, but that would definitely be one of the the interesting outcomes for that because it is a question, right? Why do these low birth weight pigs never seem to grow as well as their normal birth weight counterparts? You know, even though you throw more nutrition at them or, or whatnot. So, yeah. And so from like from the cardiovascular scientist in me, I'm going, oh, that could just be insulin resistance, obviously at the side of the muscle, but also in the cardiovascular system. 
No, I think it's good. I, I mean, also then just for the purpose of the of today's podcast, you know, talking about the models, right? How even something like this can then potentially give us ideas of what to look for specifically in the animal sciences to look at a problem that we're having. So obviously benefits of the collaboration. And vice versa, right? You you hear about these abnormalities or these these questions. And so now this birth weight and refeeding question, to me, it's launched my mind on this insulin signaling. Uh, and so when I have time, that's something, you know, I want to pursue from a granting perspective to see because it's uh, I have a, a, a fairly strong background in insulin signaling in vascular tissue as it relates to um, muscle metabolism. And so I've always thought, okay, well, when I get back, the data now are published. So getting back to that, I want to, that's the, one of the next big studies I want to do is like a write a grant for is to get that going so that um, to see, is this what's going on? Because from, again, from that's, it serves producers, but also then from the human perspective, these are problems that uh, children are facing uh, as they develop and, you know, kids are born low, low birth weight all the time. And, and this wasn't complicated, low birth weight. This was just uncomplicated, low birth weight. Uh, so just small for gestational age, which is a true value of that work. So you're, you know, it's a very, it's a very high prevalence problem, if that makes sense. Uh, so before we get to the end, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't? Um, no, I will plug the Ossabaw swine, though. Well, I guess that, that would be it. So the Ossabaw swine, um, I've done some work with them, and I, I might actually be going down to the States to do some more work with them. But a researcher about 30 years ago went to Ossabaw Island off the coast of Georgia, trapped these, um, these pigs from that island. Apparently, they were brought over from the Spanish when they came to uh, America. And then they left them there. And then this island goes through these periods of, you know, high food availability and then low food availability. And the only pigs that ended up surviving were these ones that had a propensity to gain fat because then when it was, when it was no food availability, they could withstand a year or two on their existing resources. And so when this researcher went and trapped and then brought, he colonized them for a, a research study as a model of kind of modern day diabetes of just diet induced diabetes because they, they develop all the clinical signs of obesity, including obesity quite rapidly. And that was their survival mechanism when there's no food around, but in an environment where there's perpetually lots of food around, uh, it's not a great survival technique. Um, and so anyways, we've done some work with those swine and now we're, we're hopefully getting into more. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I recently interacted with a, a farm out of Alberta, and they were using these Ossabaw swine. I guess they're, um, they're like delicacies. So their, their meat is used for prosciutto, and they've got a, all sorts of, uh, you know, it's like the Wagyu beef of the pork industry. Maybe not that. I don't know what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, just it's, it's this really delicate swine, which, again, I just I had no idea. I've been thinking about them as, you know, this model of diet-induced obesity and diabetes for so long. And then I found out that, you know, it's actually the finer cuts of pork that these pigs are known for, at least on the producer side. And so it was something I thought, oh, this is super interesting. But that's who I ended up getting some Asaba swine for, for some of my research. 
Um, and anyways, it was it was entertaining to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds very similar to the Iberian pigs, which again are the same type of you know the, the fat deposition and everything with them is very different. And I've actually been involved in some other model work where we were looking at like. Uh, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis, it, it's like basically liver problems and high-fat diets. So it's one of those things, okay, you're looking at them. You might you might have uh, uh, benefits with the, the cardiovascular or cerebrovascular, but you might be ruined in their liver. So just <laughs> watch, out. watch out for that. So I guess before, before we get to everybody's favorite three questions, uh, I will just ask, you know, if there's one or two take-home messages that you want the listeners to get from today's uh, episode, you know, what would those be? One would be, I'll take this chance to advocate for physical activity. So get out and exercise, be active, uh, and, and try and be active every day. And that will be beneficial for your health span and life. So that's one thing I'll, I'll, and the next thing is, I guess, um, you know, I didn't really, I I'll say thank you to the swine industry just on account of it's, there's just so many different doors that get open there and so many overlaps of ideas and, and potential synergies and all these things there uh, that I just was never aware of. And then I got involved in it and whether it's, you know, enrichment in a barn or uh, low birth weight and nitric oxide signaling or the effect of body size on cardiac function, there's just been all these overlaps and, Everything just keeps building and building and building. And so I'll just thank the swine industry for they're very open and everything's been great. So always one of the benefits that I see of working in pigs is that we can we benefit more than just our industry. Um, I, I would be interested to know if we see an uptick in gym membership applications after this episode with the ones who <laughs> hopefully we get some people out there and on the treadmills uh, and, and benefit from from that. <laughs> It's time for our famous three. Okay, so before I let you go, we have our three questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, the first one, I'll, I'll tweak it a little bit because we normally ask about a swine resource, but that might not be as applicable. So maybe just uh, your favorite uh, science-related or, or something in your field uh, resource that you kind of always go to. Well, uh, a book in the swine world that I like is uh, it's by Michael Swindle and it's called swine and biomedical research. And it's uh, it's basically the resource of all people like me who use swine as biomedical research models uh, because he, he breaks it down really well and goes over all the details required to study swine. And I mean, you know, in my world, uh, swine are a whole different beast. A lot of people are used to working with mice and rats, uh, and they just have no concept of what it means to work with large animals and work with them on a throughput uh, that's required for science, which is nothing like production animal throughput, but uh, just the even the physical limitations to working with them, and this book covers it all, so um, it's a, it's a great resource for scientists who do swine work or for those that don't but want to know a little bit more about it. So Swine and Biomedical Research by Michael Swindle. I, I, I haven't heard of that one. I'm going to have to look it up too because I delve into that every once in a while and then I'm always asked, why are you working with swine and not rodents? So that might be a good one <laughs> to look up. 
the FDA now, I know that the FDA for a number of their thing, for a number of their approvals now require that you go through a large animal model first. Um, and so only to say that the value of swine in biomedical research is only increasingly being recognized. So one of the issues we face in, in my world is that a lot of times things, you know, almost any intervention you see that's applied to a, a mouse or a rat seemingly works. Uh, and so in my PhD, as I was saying, I did a lot of rodent work. We were studying diabetic neuropathy. And it seemed that in the literature, no matter what you did for diabetic neuropathy, the issue was solved in the rat. And the treatment restored blood flow to the nerve and nerve function. And then when you look at the number of successful treatments in humans, it's basically non-existent. And so from that, it's just, well, how well do these lower order species reflect uh, the human? And the short answer is maybe not as well as we had hoped. And so this is where I think there's going to be a, an increasingly large role for swine in biomedical research because the FDA has picked up on this and they're saying in order to take your drug to the next level and eventually see that if, if it's effective in humans, you need to show some evidence in a species that is not a rodent. And so uh, that's where it starts. And I think then from that is the trickle down effect where independent researchers are going to start going, oh, they'll see the value in swine. Well, hopefully that means our grant applications in the future are a little bit easier to, to get past the reviewers. So <laughs> so our, our, our next question um, is a book or, or resource that you kind of go to or you particularly enjoyed outside of science in your field. Okay, so I'm um, when I moved to the States, I became really interested in the you know, the American War of Independence. I became interested in the War of 1812, uh, the Civil War. And one of the books that I read that I, I absolutely loved was by Ron Chernow, and it's a book called Grant. And it's um, a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who led the Union Army. And it's, it's, uh, it's a fantastic book. Ron Chernow also has a book on George Washington, which is equally as, as fascinating. But I I guess I favor his book on Grant. So that'll be my recommendation. It's not small, but it's so thick, it'll make you look smart just holding it. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe that'll be uh, what gets people out there to get it. Um, and then our final question is, when you look back at uh, particularly successful or effective leaders, what is uh, an attribute or characteristic that they had that you think makes them particularly successful? All of the, um, you know, I've had great mentorship. Every advisor I've had and every supervisor and mentor I've had, I, I literally, all the degrees I did, I just followed strong mentorship. So I, I didn't go to the, I literally just after meeting with these people decided this is who I want to work with. And that's what guided everything else. Um, and across, across the board, I would say all of them were, adopted a player coach style and so i i found that to be very successful i don't i don't know if it's successful for everybody but uh the mentors i had all seemed to be player coaches so they were willing to get in the trenches uh you know washing a lab dish wasn't beneath them and they led by example uh, and at all times and so you know not only in the lab, but outside of the lab, I often strive to be a little more like my mentors. Uh, so I admired them not only 
professionally, but personally as well. And so at the end of the day, I think a commonality among all of them is that they were player coaches and just led by example. So, yeah, I always find that's an interesting question to ask and hear what people say, because, you know, it's also going to come down to what you would need as working under them. Right. Um, sometimes I feel like being that player coach that me going in and trying to help my students at this point is more of a hindrance, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, in some situations. My one, be- um, my one mentor, uh, his name, Harold Laughlin, who I mentioned earlier, we had, there is a line in the lab with duct tape on the ground where he wasn't allowed to come past that line. If we were running experiments, <laughs> because as soon as he showed up, all the experiments start failing. If he crossed that line and wanted to look at what was going on. And so we just put this duct tape line. That's where you stop. You can have your coffee and throw comments at us, but you can't come any closer than that. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to tell my students to do that. Put tape where you don't want me to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so anyways, he I have a, a million stories about watching him come into the lab and, and turn things around for us, watching his mentorship uh, or students who I was trying to get something out of uh, and I was just failing to bring out their best. And somehow he was able to elicit peak performances on a consistent basis from everybody. Uh, and so I, I don't know how he did it all the time, but watch the number of times I watched him uh, just empower people to do better. Like if I could, if I could bottle that and then feed it to my students, uh, not that I'm upset with my students, but just I would, and I, I don't have it, but he does. And, you know, I was lucky enough to work with someone who had it. So you get to see it and then you get to reflect on how you don't have it for the next 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you have any tips or tricks, I'd love to know because that's something that we always want to know. But yeah, so, okay, well, I guess that brings us to the end. I think we've gotten uh, uh, enough time for our people, our listeners. So I will thank you again for coming on and, and, and joining us. I think I, I really enjoyed the topic. I, I hope other people uh, do as well. I think it was very interesting to see a different side of pig research and, and what we can do with swine. So uh, I'll just, like I said, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me.